Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast in season three with me, Gemma Richards. As before, I invite a special guest to share their experience with food, namely friend or foe, whether it is easy or less so. In light of the first two seasons, it appears to be foe for many, as it was for me. But this doesn't have to always be. Exciting news. We've started a crowdfunder for the podcast and to help fund anyone suffering with an eating disorder unable to afford one-to-one therapy. Check the link in our show notes, donate, leave a review. We're always so grateful. Because you know if this area of your life is skewed, then so is the rest. It's never just about food. Hi, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. My guest today is Sarah Liz King. Sarah is a health at every size exercise physiologist and health coach. Using scientific fact and personal experience, she empowers women to develop positive relationships with food in their bodies. Through her one-to-one and group coaching programs, Sarah helps women regain their periods, balance their hormones, find food freedom, and have a healthier relationship with exercise, all while gaining body confidence. Sarah describes herself as an absolute light beam of energy and knowledge. Her message is crisp with a side of kick-ass. And I'd like to add that Sarah is generous of spirit because this is our second attempt at an interview because someone, not mentioning any names, but it might have been me, corrupted the original audio files, adding to the illusion that I know what I'm doing. Sarah, welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much for having me for round two. (laughs) Yes, exactly. See if we can actually get through to the end this time. So you're in Sydney. It's... uh, it's eight o'clock in the UK, five with you. That's correct. The sun is just setting. The days are short here and the days are long for you. Yeah, really long. We had a, a massive full, I'm in the countryside at the moment. We had a huge full moon last night and um, yeah, the sun doesn't set till about half nine. It's beautiful. Mm, I love those days. I miss, I live for summer, but you know, have to live through winter to get to summer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just dive in. Uh, and actually, we've just had this discussion, Sarah and I, that we can't actually remember what we spoke about last time. So this is new for us too. What would you say, food, is food friend to you or is it foe? Food is definitely a friend to me now. Um, but in a previous life, if it, it was definitely a foe and, you know, it was a long winding road to get back to food being something that I consider my friend again. Can you briefly or lengthily outline that story when it started to be a foe? When did that start? Yeah, definitely. So I remember in high school, really, I had um, high stress and high anxiety in that last year when we had to do all of our final exams. And I'd always had quite a sensitive stomach. And I just noticed that it got worse and worse and worse. And so eventually I I got to the doctor and I was like, this is what's happening. Anyway, this doctor sent me to a dietitian and the dietitian was like, cut out all these foods that could be aggravating your stomach um, and kind of like sent me away. And first of all, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat? And then some small part in my mind was like, oh, what a great guys to start kind of you know, eating healthier and dieting and all of that kind of things. And I was 17 at the time. And um, so it started off innocently enough. I just wanted to be healthier and like, you know, I felt pressure to kind of look a certain way and school formal was coming up and all of those things. And I thought, oh gosh, wouldn't this just be the, the best thing to do for my body? 
fast forward to, you know, university and that anxiety around, you know, being a type A personality intensified and, you know, exams came around and I just found that I was relying more and more on exercise and really being controlling around my food to, um, I guess, deal with everything in my life that felt a little bit out of control. And so that's when I started to notice that things weren't as normal around food as they used to be. Did you, can I just ask you, the anxiety, was that about being good enough and perfect and sort of the straight A mentality? Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, you know, when you're in that final year of school, it's, you know, they convince you that it's, the end of the world if you don't get, you know, the best grades possible. And of course I wanted a good grade to get into university and do the course that I wanted to do. Um, So I really, I guess, pushed myself quite hard. Did you, did you grow up in that environment? Is your family like that? Um, not really, which is kind of interesting. Like my dad is definitely a go-getter and he and I are quite alike in the fact that, you know, if we want something, we pursue it. Yeah. Whereas my mom's quite like a gentle spirit, like always very intellectual, very interested in learning, but not in that competitive nature that definitely my dad and I have. So were you competitive when you were small, like six, seven, eight? Do you remember? Oh, Look, I was definitely competitive in sport and maybe a little bit in school, but definitely more in sport. And I was involved in um, equestrian sports growing up. So I did oh. show jumping and, and dressage and oh, did all of those you? kinds of things. That's, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think if you're doing dressage and show jumping at, at that age, you have to be so disciplined, don't you? And committed. Yeah. And you have to be at a very high level to to show jump and certainly to do dressage so I really get that yeah yeah so that you know I was I was doing all of the things you know playing piano and trying to be perfect at that and you know ride horses and trying to win every competition and you know at school I always tried my best I wasn't I wouldn't say like when I was younger that I was the best student I wasn't the brightest in every single class I was in, but I, I applied myself fairly well and I learned how to kind of study and absorb knowledge over time. But I always had that competitive kind of type A perfectionist personality, which we know all too well can yeah. be a person or a personality type that is a, a higher risk of disordered eating or eating disorders, Did you, which is definitely what I fell into. Yeah, oh, sh- sure. Did you, I'm intrigued before we move on, did you feel, um, did you feel like you were achieving and that you were successful? You know, the interesting thing, and I, I still kind of have to remind myself even now is because I always was on to the next thing. I never really gave myself credit for right. the things that I had achieved. And even now I have to be very mindful of that because people say like, wow, like look at what you've created for yourself and, and look how many people you've helped and all of these things. And I just think, yeah, maybe, but because yeah. I'm so focused on the next thing, right. I probably don't give myself as much of the credit <laughs> as yeah. I potentially should. I Yeah, I understand that. And you have, you've achieved a, a massive amount. I was looking at your website yesterday, just thinking, God, this work is fantastic. So congratulations. Thank you. 
take a little moment there to sit with the achievement. Yeah, yeah, we'll <laughs> marinate in this. <laughs> exactly, a side of greens. So you're you're uh, seduced by the notion and the feeling that you can, um, I guess, lose weight and look a certain way, having restricted your food. So now, where are you? Are you like nineteen, twenty? Yeah, so I'm around that age and at university studying um, nutrition of all things, which looking back now, I'm like, oh, well, I definitely knew why I was attracted to those subjects. It was because I had a very warped relationship with food myself. And during that time, I then did my personal training qualification on top of that. So I was like, oh, I know what else I can add to this. Um I'll be a personal trainer through university and I'll show people that if I have the perfect body, then I'll have the most successful business. So that was kind of the next avenue I went down, which really spiraled my disordered eating into more of an eating disorder. So how, what did your disordered eating look like? My disordered eating was definitely being picky around food and, you know, starting to buy things that were, um, I guess, more uh, like, quote unquote, clean, because this was the whole stage of like clean eating. And I was very much influenced by that, which Mm. I would see in magazines and um, look up things on the internet about. So that's what I was, I guess, starting to change towards like, you know, no sugar and unprocessed foods and all of these things. And, um, and I thought I had control over it. And then it definitely started to have control over me because I became afraid of eating things that weren't that, that help that weren't the really healthy thing I thought was okay to eat. So when I had that disordered eating, if I had something that wasn't deemed like good enough I was still okay I kind of just put it into perspective and moved on and then when the eating disorder really took hold it was like no like if I went outside the plan or outside the foods that I thought I could have the guilt the shame the turmoil the upset was just so wildly disproportionate to what I had actually done that's when I realized that it was something uh, that had turned I guess against me did you use exercise to offset it yeah so exercise is predominantly the the main behavior that I struggled with throughout my eating disorder um I think the food side of things is often the most spoken about part and exercise doesn't get too much uh I guess time in the limelight but it is often the thing that people struggle with you know, if we look at the research, people often develop a disordered relationship with exercise even before they they start to change anything with their food intake and can often perpetuate for longer even after the eating disorder is gone. So, yes, I definitely over-exercised and did it for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. And what did what did the over-exercise look like, a, a day of exercise? So supposing you'd eaten something and gone off your plan... Mm. And then I don't know, maybe you woke up the next day or maybe you had to exercise immediately. How did, how how did it look? So look, it wasn't anything wild, but it was definitely like, 
a lot of time, you know, trying to get out for walks and, you know, always making sure that I went to the gym. I think looking back now, I always had like a a pretty good program that I would follow. So I wouldn't push myself beyond the gym program that I had had set for me. But, you know, if I had a spin class that week, then I would try and push a little bit harder in the spin class. Or if I was already going out for a walk, I would make myself go a little bit further than the normal route that I would go on. Um, yeah. But I never remember it having to be, you know, it must be this amount of time and it must be this amount of reps, which I think was a good thing. Like, you know, I still had a lot of, uh, I guess the control had a lot of control over me. But even looking back now, I, I, I was lucky in the fact that I was still a little bit flexible in that it wasn't, this has to be every single day. But I definitely felt a lot of pressure to always be active. I think that's that's lovely that you can look back and think that you were lucky because that constant driver, internal driver, I've said this so many times, it's an exhausting way to live, isn't it? And the fact that you were able to grab hold of it and you're saying, oh, it was nothing wild. Yeah, but it's pernicious, isn't it? It's there and just eating away at you all the time. Yeah. I think it's so easy for us to put in, it into perspective and go like, oh, it wasn't that bad compared to, yeah. I know, what a lot of people endure. But I remember when I was in it at its worst, yeah. it was just unlivable. It Your whole day revolves around, first of all, your thoughts and yep. those thoughts being about food and those thoughts being about your body and those thoughts being about exercise, that there is no way in edgewise for anything else to exist and it's just it's not a way to live long term and from the outside looking in people were praising me and I feel like that was the most unhelpful part because it just reinforced for me that this was a positive thing and you know I should be this way even though the way that I was eating and exercising and living my life was so unhealthy and I was so down this like spiral of um, developing a mental illness. Did you talk to anybody? Did you have friends? Did you did you isolate yourself, or did you maintain a happy facade while it was all going on behind the scenes? I definitely wouldn't say that I completely isolated myself, but I definitely withdrew a mm-hmm. lot from social situations, other than those social situations which were at the gym. So I found that I was spending more time at the gym and making friends at the gym. And so then it reinforced that what I was doing was normal because those people would go there every day. And surely, you know, if I was doing some exercise and these people were doing exercise, it was nothing out of the norm. But the difference was I wasn't fueling my body adequately. I wasn't resting it properly. I was going for the wrong intentions and I I mean I don't know what was going on for those other people but my assumption can only be that that wasn't the case for everyone that was there yeah but I imagine they were running similar stories because that's that's what happens isn't it we attract people who are who are are living a similar life at various stages yeah sometimes we do let's take a quick break we'll be back in a moment You're listening to This Food Thing with me, Gemma Richards. Welcome back to This Food Thing podcast. I'm here today with Sarah Liz King. 
Sarah was just talking before about her exercise addiction. And we got to the point where I wanted to ask her how she got herself out of it, which is why I took a break. So Sarah, how did you, what, so you're at the gym, you're surrounding, your social life has um, diminished. You've isolated yourself to a certain extent. Was there a trigger point where you thought this is enough, uh, a series of events? How did you, how did you turn yourself around? That is such a great question. And there was definitely a turning point for me. So um, I guess a bit of a backstory about this. I mentioned before I was studying to be a personal trainer. And when I finished that qualification, I decided to do a bodybuilding competition. Okay. Now that was an endeavor in itself, but the driver behind that, if I was being completely honest, was to transform my body and show people that if I could transform my body that I could help them do the same and wouldn't that be a beautiful way to kind of market my business Um, (laughs) and I did the first competition and I actually had a lot of fun I learned a lot of things I'd actually you know I took it seriously but I didn't take it too seriously compared to a lot of the other competitors and I did the division called like bikini competition so you weren't meant to look extremely lean you were meant to look quite toned and like you had a good amount of muscle mass but of course everyone wanted to be as lean as possible so did this competition I came second I was quite impressed with myself and I, something within me was like, we should do another one of these. And there's a, yes. there's one in, you know, there's one in, I think it was two months time or something like that. And so straight away after the show, I have about a week off and then I start training again and dieting more. And I just became so rigid throughout this routine. And I had this moment one day where I had woken up to go and do the fasted cardio in the morning that my coach had told me that I needed to do every single day and it was in the middle of winter and I was so tired and so underfueled and I was walking on this treadmill and I just remember feeling hungry and lightheaded and asking myself like should I be doing this I feel like crying right now and everyone on the gym everyone in the gym around me looked like they were like elated and smiling and having a good time. And (laughs) inside my head, I was just so unhappy. Wow. But I kept going. And it was only about a week before the second competition that I was like, no, I can't do this anymore. I was just having emotional breakdowns all the time. I felt so, I guess, um, uncomfortable around food and, and people that, were different making my food and I realized that it was definitely an issue that needed to be addressed. Um, So I pulled out of the competition, which was lucky, and that was the turning point where I started seeking help. Um, Now, from that point to when I actually recovered was a little while, though. Sure. How did you, um, what did you do? Did you go and see your local doctor? Did you join a group? How did you, how did you get help? Yeah, so I, first of all, I called my parents because they were living in New York at the time and I was living by myself in Australia. Um, And I told them what I was happening, what was happening. And I said, I need someone to come and look after me. I don't think I'm okay. 
which wow. scared mum because I'd always been okay. I'd always been hyper independent. I've always been the problem solver and the one that she could kind of like comfortably not keep an eye on and know that everything was fine and I wasn't fine. So she came back and we went to the GP together and from there I was sent to um, some outpatient care and kind of did swings and roundabouts until I found better treatment. But, I mean, it was like two years until I had found better treatment. And wow! throughout that time I had moments of being a little bit better and then a little bit worse. But my eating disorder and exercise addiction went on from about 2008 to about 2013, 14. So quite a significant amount of time. And like I said, there were periods where I was doing really well and then periods where I would slip back into, uh, I guess, uh, more unhelpful patterns again. But, um, yeah, it, it was a wild ride. Yeah. Did you share with your friends what was going on? Did you, did you include people? Nobody knew. I mean, maybe they did know. My, my boyfriend knew. My poor boyfriend at the time had to experience um, <laughs> what it was like to live with someone that had an eating disorder. Yeah, um, yeah. But again, like no one else kind of outside of my family and my closest friends really had any idea what was happening for me from the point of view that I didn't tell them. They probably had an idea of what was going on because I had lost so much weight. You know, I was always at the gym. I was very careful about the foods I decided and allowed myself to eat. All of those things kind of matched up with having a strained relationship with food, but nobody ever really questioned me about it except for some of my close, close friends. There's so much shame around it because it's just so moving to listen to your story because I can feel, I can feel that, that, that tiny little place that we inhabit when, when we're in those situations and it's like a tiny, tiny prison, isn't it? Mm. And it just presses on you and the shame around letting go and not being able to, but wanting to, but, and, and the fear around letting go is immense. It's like a, it's like a peak moment. So I'm wondering, this is a very personal question. I'm wondering if, well, if you did have those feelings and, and how you dealt, dealt with those feelings, was it like a, a gradual, you know, like a thawing out? Yeah, it's, I definitely felt like just as you described, I think the most ironic thing that we get sold as women through diet culture and even fitness culture is the idea that smaller bodies lead to happier lives. And sometimes the opposite is true. And it definitely was for me that the smaller I got, the more unhappy I got and the smaller my life became and the more intrusive it became. And the more my eating disorders sold me the idea that if I was to out it to the world, then I would have nothing and I would be nobody. And that's where all the guilt and the shame kind of get wrapped up, as well as the fact that you will be a person labelled with a mental health condition. And you were, you are smart and funny and witty, 
how can someone like that fall into this situation? Which is, I think, where, you know, there's so much self-judgment that goes on from the people who are suffering because a lot of people with mental health concerns and, and eating disorders being one of those are some of the most incredibly intelligent, compassionate, well-educated, hilarious individuals you'll ever meet who fall into situations where they feel like they can't get themselves out. And I was one of those. Yeah, particularly when you're young and you think you can handle everything and you can't, which only comes with hindsight, doesn't it? It's only when you look back, Mm. however many years later, and you go, oh, wow, I was just a baby. Even yeah. though you thought you were ready to take on the world, which, you know, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Um, so you, you got the right support and, um, yeah, did you have to stop exercising? There was a time and, and period of my life where I quit How long and did I you needed not, to. Yeah. How long did you not exercise for? Uh, it was about a year. So wow. I think between like six months and a year that I didn't do any structured exercise other than I would go for walks. I was allowed to go for walks. And um, I did one Pilates class a week. So I quit the gym. I didn't go to the gym at all. And I went to a dance studio to do the Pilates class once a week. And that's kind of what I capped it at um, because I was told under no uncertain terms from my dietitian, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to do any more. And she instilled the fear of death in me because she was just like the like blessing in disguise bless her cotton socks she was so good to actually get me to eat enough again but um I was terrified of her (laughs) yeah um what is that is that a car outside your studio oh that's a motorcycle is it so loud that's great, though. It's in it's in our interview. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, did you, when you were, I'm just thinking of you being told not to exercise and you're sitting there obviously itching, itching to exercise. Did you also have just a tiny little spark of, of relief going on? Did that come later? Uh, it probably came later. I think in the first few months I was just angry. Yeah. Angry yeah. because like, I really enjoyed exercise, but I'd made it into something very insidious and I had to get space from it so that I could enjoy it again and for the right reasons. Um, So that came, I think that, I guess, the relief came later when I started to notice that I, it was less moody. So my, I had more stable moods because I wasn't so exhausted all of the time um, I wasn't cold all the time because I wasn't expending excess energy. So the food that I was eating could actually go to use like to what my body could use, which was like all the repair and restore work that it needed to do. Yeah. But yeah, the, the moments of relief were probably overshadowed by the moments of just anger and wanting to this process to be faster and to be over really. And I guess, you know, having been a, obviously very successful and competitive and a, a high achiever, I imagine you were raging that you'd failed. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a, it's such a weird feeling because 
your healthy, rational self is like you are succeeding and getting better. But yeah. that is so small in comparison to that eating disorder voice that tells you that you are not good enough because you couldn't even be successful in, you know, doing what you needed to do to be as small and as lean and as athletic as you could be. You failed that. And that was hard. That was so difficult. I absolutely understand that because I used to remonstrate with myself, obviously, for not being thin enough or for then eating and purging, which meant that I wasn't a good anorexic. Yeah. How messed up is that? That's the thing we know. Eating disorders are purely irrational. Yeah. Purely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're okay so you're you're recovering did you um so did you carry on with your personal training or did you have to park that up and then go back to it so I actually after I did my personal training qualification never did any because I fell into my eating disorder but what I did do instead which uh I think started because I I had always had a love of Pilates and I always did that at the gym. And then when I quit the gym, I did it at a a dance studio where the same instructor that was at the gym used to teach just this one class for dancers, but people from the outside world could come in and take the class as well. And I was like, well, I think I want to be a Pilates instructor. Maybe that'll be a, a better form of exercise for me to teach because it's something gentle and something that I can do and it won't kind of, get in the way of my recovery. So I, yeah, I went and did a Pilates teacher training course and the most beautiful soul, I guess, who was my mentor, she took me on afterwards to do all of my hours and observation. And she knew what was going on that I was in recovery because there were a few times where I said to her, I was like, I'll have to go into the back room and eat at these break times and then I'll come back out and, she was like, that's fine. Okay. So yeah, I, I taught throughout my recovery, I taught Pilates and I did a little bit of small group personal training um, throughout my university degree. So okay. I, I did it in a way, but it was never, I never did anything weight loss related. I was, I was very smart about that. Yeah. And Pilates, although it's, it's tough, isn't it? It's tough on that reformer. It is gentle and um, it's tonally very different from Mm. training to, for a bodybuilding competition or <laughs> yeah. yeah thundering along on the treadmill okay we're yeah. going to take a little break we'll be right back you're listening to this food thing with me Gemma richards hi welcome back to this food thing podcast i'm here today with the lovely sarah liz king and um, we're talking about, um, why do I always do that? I have a little break. I chat with you and then I forget what I'm going to say. We were talking about, ah, yes, your recovery, your Pilates mentor and how you got yourself back on your feet. I would like to move on a little bit, if that's okay, and talk about your work. Um, uh, yeah. And your views on, on your work and, and, and the clients and the stories and the psychology that you have to deal with every day. Yeah. I mean, I never thought I would be doing what I am doing now. And I am so grateful that I can give back to, I guess, the community and the kinds of, of people that um, 
are going through what I experienced and uh, I guess provide what I wish I had when I was going through this. So I do um, coaching and coaching is different from seeing a psychologist because coaching is about behavioral change and at the same time providing people with helpful skills and coping strategies that they can use alongside when they have to make these changes to have a successful recovery. Um, And it is challenging because sometimes you are kind of dealing with people's really intimate stories and parts of their lives that they don't share with anyone else. And to be able to guide someone through this is such a blessing. Um, So the main kind of clientele that I see are people struggling with disordered eating, Um, exercise addiction or overtraining and I also kind of as a side effect of this have been helping women that have a condition that can occur as the result of um, an eating disorder but not always disordered eating which is called hypothalamic amenorrhea or okay the loss of a menstrual cycle and that is due to under eating overtraining and or psychological stress Okay. And how did that start? Did, did, did you just meet someone that um, was experiencing that and it, it, it grew or do, is that a phenomenon? No, it phenomenon? so it's not. It's very common for a lot of women. Okay. Um, I experienced it myself and that was one of the reasons why I dived into further research and educate myself in that area because I realized that there was such little information from both the medical world and from allied health professionals who could help with this. Um, So it is kind of like sometimes a side effect of people that have more restrictive eating disorders, um, but it can happen to a person of any weight. So it's not necessarily those who are underweight that get it. But um, yeah, for me, I didn't have a period for 10, for almost 10 years and I lost it before my eating disorder started as a result of being highly stressed but nobody ever kind of told me that that could happen or how I could get my periods back I was just told I had PCOS and all of these other things which wasn't true um so I recovered mine naturally once I figured out that this was what I was going through and now I have a systematic approach to help other women regain theirs as well how do you recover naturally? It is um, simple in theory, harder in practice. Yeah. It is uh, you have to really modify and reduce down your exercise, significantly increase the food intake that you are having. And the really big one is learning how to manage your stress. And, you yeah. know, what I said before, type A personality I push myself to the extreme. So I really had to learn how to proactively manage my stress alongside these two other components. And once I'd figured out that was kind of what was going on and this is what I needed to do to recover, it was like a slow process, but it took me about six months. And then my body was like, oh, here you go. Menstrual cycle has returned. And it was, I just remember being shocked that day because I was like, oh my God. My body isn't broken. This is amazing. So do you think the body, when when your um, menstruation ceases, do you think the body is saying, I'm broken? The body's not saying I'm broken. The body is saying, 
I'm under too much stress. So okay. we're putting the body in kind of what you would do with your phone when the battery is a bit low. It's on power saving mode, right? So it only prioritizes um, essential functions to save as much battery power as possible. Well, your body does the same thing when it doesn't have enough energy, except its non-essential functions are the things that it turns off. So reproduction being one of them for women, yeah. especially, um, it does get downregulated in men as well who experience like undernutrition and overtraining. Um, but then it also affects things like digestion, thyroid function, uh, how well you can perform and recover if you are exercising, a myriad of different things. So this condition, which is called hypothalamic amenorrhea, sits underneath what is kind of called relative energy deficiency in sport. It's a collective terminology of what's considered like low energy availability, with so many different offshoots of what it does to affect the body and also performance. And it's kind of talked about in athletes, but it can happen to any person. You don't have to be an athlete for this to kind of start occurring in your body. So, yeah, is it, does it belong? I mean, I'm just pretending that I know nothing about it. I do know a little bit about it, but I'm going to pretend I know nothing about it. Does it belong to alternative practitioners? Is it within mainstream medical? Yeah, so it, it sits within mainstream medicine. Okay. Um, it is, so hypothalamic amenorrhea is something to do with your hypothalamus and it's actually something to do with hormones. So typically yeah. seen by an endocrinologist who mm. is a specialist in hormone health um, and then should kind of be teamed up with a dietitian and an exercise physiologist and sometimes a psychologist can be helpful as well in terms of treatment because you need to really address all of the different components that a person might be experiencing as the root cause of what's driving the, the missing period. But um, I think a lot of alternative practitioners have kind of come in to support that side of things as well. So you typically see acupuncturists and naturopaths and all of those kinds of professions um, talking about fertility issues and supporting this recovery process as being one, but no amount of acupuncture or herbs will make your period come back. If you're not addressing the undernutrition and the overtraining and the stress. Sure. Yeah. And the psychological issues. So if someone came, so, so supposing I came to you and I said, I'm, um, I'm exercising, you know, twice a day and my periods have stopped and um, I only eat vegetables and, and fish um, and I'm I'm desperate because I can't continue along this way. Um, I'd like to join a coaching program or one of your groups. Um, what 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 would happen? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. So hmm. I run a group coaching program specifically for women wanting to recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea, and it includes a very personalised one to one approach. So. Anyone that enrolls gets a one-to-one -one session with me. And then there's eight weeks of guided uh, course content and weekly group calls that you go through, um, as well as one-to-one -one messaging. So the platform 
on my website, which houses all of the course material, also has the messaging systems. You can ask me any questions. And that's how someone will be, I guess, supported through that recovery process because it it is kind of a, a... a stepped approach. You can't just throw the kitchen sink at someone and be like, oh, well, if you're only eating, you know, vegetables and fish, I expect you to eat this many more foods and this much more variety, even though that might terrify you initially. It's about taking a stepped approach and going like, okay, let's try adding this in. And when you're a bit nervous about something, let's work through why that might be and really help you to be successful in this process. Because I know that it is not just snapping your fingers and being able to come out the other side with a fantastic relationship with food and exercise. It really is about helping someone through that in a slow and steady way. The trajectory is more important than the speed. Yeah, for sure. And then also I could say, well, it's not enough for me just being in a group. I'd like to have one-on-one coaching. So I could do that every week with you, could I? You can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I also have uh, coaching programs And they typically go for 12 sessions as a minimum because as many people know who've had any, I guess, strained relationship with food or exercise and eating disorder or disordered eating, it takes time for change to stick. So building on things every single week is the most successful way towards recovery. And I've found that with my clients, that's when they get the best results. Um, The group program does get amazing results as well. But I feel like you have to be quite a self-motivated person to yeah, for sure. make those changes. I'll tell you everything you need to do, but you know, I, I can't force you to do it. And is the fundamental or the shared feeling between your clients, I'm not good enough? A lot of the time it is. A lot of the time it is. And it's interesting because when you ask someone, when did you start feeling that way? Or when did you notice? It's usually always goes back to like early childhood memories. And so these stories have been built for such a long time that they, they take a while to unravel. And while we cannot change the past, we can understand why we feel the way we do now based on those memories and and kind of give, give it a bit of space to be, and also realize that we can write a new chapter moving forward. Yeah. So you're helping women and, and men, you mentioned, uh, but mainly women write new narratives, aren't you? Yeah. And, and feel, feel differently about their story. That's yeah. the point, isn't it? To feel different. Yes, to feel different. And to also, I think one of the biggest takeaways that people get through this journey with me is that thinness is not a solution to your emotional problems. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you have to learn how to feel your feelings and realize that you don't need to run away or escape them or numb out from them with restriction or with food. Yeah. That they aren't so scary if you learn how to deal with them. And most people haven't ever been skills, haven't haven't ever been given skills on how to regulate emotions in a healthy way so that is something that serves people for the rest of their life yeah that's fantastic and Sarah also has a podcast called holistic health radio yes I do which has just reached 200,000 downloads which is absolutely fantastic 
Now, all these details are going to be on our Instagram page and Sarah's website, which is sarahlizking.com, isn't it? That's correct. Yes. <gasps> I had that without even writing it down. <laughs> um, uh, it's, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I could, I could talk for ages. It's been lovely, lovely talking with you. No, I've thoroughly enjoyed this podcast and I hope the listeners get so much value out of it. I could talk forever as well. Uh, They certainly will. You can't go yet. I've got one more question for you. What five foods would you take to an island? Uh, This was the question. (laughs) I do remember it now. You remember this question. I don't remember what you chose. It's a surprise. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I'll probably choose different things now. Choose differently. Yeah. Um, so the five foods I would take, well, I would take my top three favorites because this is my favorite breakfast combination, but you could really have it at any time of day, which is, uh, toast, avocado and eggs. Okay. Most beautiful combination of foods. Yeah. Um, how do you have your eggs? Uh, so if I go out, I definitely have them poached, but I don't do that at home. (laughs) If I have it at home. I make, I typically make like fried or scrambled eggs because it's a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I can never poach an egg. They always split. I don't know why. I I know there's a secret, <laughs> there's a talent to it. And I don't have yeah. that, don't have that quite yet. So those are the first three that I would take. Um, and then I would probably take coffee and chocolate. <gasps> my other two. That's a good list. That's good. I don't normally comment on people's lists, but that's good. Okay. I'm going to come, I'm going to come to your island. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be having a lot of toast. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But we've got loads of time to practice poaching the eggs because it'll be hot. So there'll be a little, like a little hot rock pool and we can poach our eggs there. Yeah. Yeah. So inventive. (laughs) Fantastic. Sarah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Yeah. have Have a lovely evening in Sydney. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.